You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 12. And as you're turning, I might mention that if you um, notice that I seem a little bit uncertain or perhaps awkward this morning, let me explain to you the reason why that may be, if that is your perception. For the first time in my life, I've had the opportunity to, in just the recent weeks and the weeks upcoming, to, uh, to act in a movie that Ken Anderson Studio is putting out. And just Friday, I had to act the part of a preacher, and I had to preach a sermon to the camera. And um, after I finished my sermon, the director and the assistant director agreed that, um, that it needed some improvement. <laughs> and their comment was, Larry, you did it just the way we think you'd normally do it, but that isn't what we're after. So <clears throat> not quite sure exactly how to interpret all that, so you'll pardon some awkwardness as we proceed. Exodus chapter 12. And listen to verse 21, as the Lord is giving through Moses to his people instructions about the Passover, as they're about to experience deliverance from Egypt. Then verse, in verse 21, Exodus 12, Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel, and he said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families, and slay the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood in the basin, and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel, and the two doorposts, and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and for your children forever. And it will come about when you enter the land which the Lord will give you as he has promised, that you shall observe this right. And it will come about that when your children will say to you, as they observe your behavior, as the behavior that I'm now instructing you to perform incites their curiosity, that when they say to you, what does this right mean to you, Dad? That you shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but he spared our homes. And the people bowed low, and worshipped. Now Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy, if you will. Chapter 6. Some more instructions for the Israelites. Chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. And verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. In other words, in the everyday normal interactions of life, that's where the teaching is going to be felt. That's where the impact is going to be realized. Not in your systematic devotional times as a family. I'm all for that, but that's not the priority. In the normal intercourse of life, you be living out the message as you communicate it naturally to your children. Verse 20. And when your son asks you in time to come, when your son asks you in response to your teaching, 
as they notice the consistency with which you're teaching the truth that you believe. When your son asks you, in time to come, it takes a while to get our kids curious, when they say, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the, the judgments mean which the Lord commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. And he brought us out from there in order to bring us in. I like that phrase. He brought us out to bring us in. To give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. And it will be righteousness for us if we're careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. One last passage in Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4. <clears throat> the people had crossed the Jordan River to move into Canaan. Their wilderness trek had been completed. They had been delivered from Egypt. The Passover lamb had been slain. And they had been rescued from Egypt by the mighty hand of God. The Jews had been given instruction on teaching their children how to live. And now they were entering into the land of Canaan. Jordan had been divided, and they had crossed over safely. And Joshua chapter 4 and verse 1 says this, Now it came about, when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, not women, twelve men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them, saying, Take up for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm, and carry them over with you, and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe, and they did what they were commanded to do. Now look down at verse 19. They took the stones out of the Jordan, and they placed them on the far bank, as a memorial for what God had done. Verse 19 of Joshua 4, The people came up from the Jordan on the tenth of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the sons of Israel, When your children ask... Again, the kids are asking questions. Their curiosity has been provoked by the behavior of their fathers. That's what I want you to notice. When your children ask their fathers in time to come, and all three passages talk about a delay in the expression of curiosity. When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children. The best time to teach is when kids are looking and listening and noticing and asking, and our behavior is to incite them to that. Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Now, at the outset, I want you to notice just one thing as I introduce the material that I want to share with you this morning. Notice just one special thread running through each of these three passages. God commanded men to live in such a way that they arouse the curiosity of other people, especially their children. Just notice that. God commanded the men to do something, to respond to their life situation in a particular way, 
And when they'd lived their lives according to God's command, that life provoked curiosity in the people who could see them up closest, especially their children. The Passover, the lived instruction of Deuteronomy 6, and the twelve stones were all expected to provoke questions, to stir questions in the minds of the children who observed their fathers obey God in each of these commands. Just notice that particular element in our three passages this morning. And as we start, let's once again pray. Father, our desire is that you speak deeply to us. Lord, it's so easy for me to hear truth from your word and to have it not go very deep because I block it out. Father, I pray that your word will have its effect of piercing down to the very core of my being and to each of our beings, to those areas of our lives that are simply not what they ought to be, to those areas of our lives that are not yet yielded, to those areas of our lives that are really not touched, Father. Father, you want whole people who are entirely committed to you. Use this hour to move us more in that direction. Expose our inconsistencies. Give us the comfort of your love as we face ourselves, the comfort of your hope as we anticipate future failures, yet knowing that you will work in our lives to bring us one day perfected before the throne. Encourage us through this, these moments together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I recall several years ago attending a, a Bible conference where a man was speaking, and his topic in the course of the week was a rather unusual topic. It's not one that I suppose you often hear at a Bible conference. But he spoke about the pull as he grew older in the ministry, as he had been faithfully serving the Lord now for, I don't know, 15, 20, 25 years, as he was faithfully serving God, he experienced a pull that was not diminishing in strength, but was rather increasing in strength, a pull to get off the track of living for God. He experienced a pull to compromise himself, to quit the hard work, a pull to lead a more emotionally comfortable brand of the Christian life. And as I listened to him chat about this topic, it was an unusual one, really. He was very open about some of his struggles. And it was obvious to anybody who was listening at all carefully that there was some real warfare going on inside of this man of God, some real problems in his own life. And because I rarely hear people in positions of Christian leadership openly admit their real spiritual struggles, I was intrigued by this man. My curiosity was aroused. He had my interest. He won it quickly. Because I realized that I wrestle very much like that too. Sometimes my efforts to face life as it really is and to respond as a Christian seems just too draining and irritating and full of pressure. And I'd rather retreat to an easier approach to deny the problems that I see in my own life and in yours to pretend that things really are going along all right and all we need is a little bit of encouragement here and there, a little instruction here and there, and things will be going on well. I'm tempted to think that way. It'd be easier. I'm tempted to believe that people are feeling deep realities about God when in fact it occurs to me that they're not. I want to believe very much that Christian leaders are mature sometimes even when I see the way they treat each other. I want to believe that most marriages are doing well in spite of the evidence in my office. I really want to believe that Christians, including myself, are, are doing well. Make it a lot easier. I had a chance to talk to this man who was openly sharing some of his struggles as he continued the ministry. After one of his messages, we got together for coffee, and I said, I really would like to know what's behind your messages. What, 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 uh, what provoked this particular topic? It isn't a very common or popular topic. 
And he said, I'm not being very well received. And I said, tell me about it a little bit. And he said, well, I'll tell you, I really feel very discouraged right now. He told me this. A mighty man of God, a very effective preacher. I feel very discouraged right now, and I feel disappointed because it seems to me that people would rather that I preach more comfortable truth. Not many want to deal with their real struggles honestly, and as he shared that, he almost wept. The next evening, after that interaction, I listened to him preach again. And he preached with power, maturity, wisdom, depth. And I knew he was struggling inside. I knew it was hard for him, and yet he remained faithful to what he believed God would have him do. And as I listened, as I listened to that man, I found him very attractively puzzling. He won my attention. He caused me to be asking some questions. I wanted to spend more time with him. I wanted to exploit the reality that I sensed was in his life, facing things as they were and staying faithful. I wanted to know how to pull that one off. I found his life attractively puzzling. Another man I know puzzles me, but in a rather different kind of a way. He's very knowledgeable, this particular man that I'm thinking of, and it's not who you're thinking of, by the way. He's very knowledgeable in the scriptures, and he has what many would call an effective and a well-received ministry. But it's hard to get close to this particular fellow. People who know him well report that they feel intimidated around him, and they're very uncomfortable in his presence. He really has very few friends, close ones at least, many acquaintances. He's the kind of relationship, he has the kind of relationship with his wife and with his kids, and I know, that makes it easier for him to, to pray with them than to hug them, or to laugh with them, or to honestly share with them. The Bible is used in that home as a weapon to keep people at a comfortable distance. And rather than dealing with life as it really is in that family, his life is subjected to a litany, his, his wife and children are subjected to a litany of Bible verses that escapes confrontation of the real issues going on in that family. He runs away from his felt inadequacy in relating meaningfully to his family. I find that man very puzzling. I really do. But very unattractively so. I find him puzzling because I wonder how can someone know the scriptures that well and miss all that it has to say about relationships. And I find him unattractively puzzling. A third man I know is a real nice fellow. He works hard. He's good to his wife and to his kids. Rarely misses church, always prays before meals, has regular devotions, witnesses occasionally, and enjoys a few wholesome hobbies. He always does what is expected. He doesn't puzzle me at all. I don't find him puzzling, confusing, irritating, attractive. He's predictable. I like him, but his life doesn't arouse any questions in me. I'm not inclined to turn to him and ask him questions about his life. Three kinds of men. Three categories which perhaps cover most of us. I suppose most of us fall into one of these three categories. Either we're attractively puzzling and people are eager to ask us questions about what they see because they want what they see. Either we're attractively puzzling or we're unattractively puzzling and people are curious because they're so annoyed with us. Or we're predictable and people are just plain bored with us. God instructed the men of Israel to live their lives in such a way that people would ask many important questions. My life is supposed to provoke you to asking deep questions about life. Deep questions are supposed to be stirred in you as you get to know me. 
That was God's command to these Old Testament Jewish men. You do these several things and your kids are going to notice and they're going to want to find out about the reality that's beneath your life. The reality beneath the questions. I want you just to think for a moment as we begin. What, whose, whose life has really intrigued you? Whose life has really intrigued you? Who is living in such a way, in your observation, that, that your tongue is really hanging out for what they have? Who, who puzzles you? Who puzzles you with a deep sense of reality that drives you to finding out how to get it? Most people, it seems to me, don't uh, provoke many questions at all. There really aren't too many that I'm eager to engage in rich conversation about what's inside them. There are several who puzzle me because I can't understand how they could handle things so badly and still have the knowledge they seem to have. There are a few, though, that I find attractively puzzling. And just last night, I decided to spend some time on this. Uh, since I was preaching today, I thought it was a good idea. And, um, and I reflected on the names of the people that I would love to engage in in-depth conversation. Whose life do I find attractively puzzling? And all the people that I have known from childhood up until these current advanced years. What really are the names of the people that, um, that puzzle me in an attractive way? And I came up with 11 names. That's not many, I don't think. But there are 11 people that I listed, one or two are with the Lord now, but 11 names of men that I've known in my life, that I know now in my life in most cases, that I really covet the opportunity to sit down and say, look, the way you live has provoked deep questions in me. And I'd love to ask you about, uh, about the reality beneath your life that has made me wonder. I'd like to know. Will you talk to me? And I have talked to several of these 11 men. Wrote their names down and I looked at them. And it struck me that uh, the following statistics struck me as uh, interesting. Seven of these 11 are in secular work. Four in so-called Christian work. Six never attended college. And ten never had formal theological training. Six are gifted as teachers of scripture and five are not effective teachers publicly or Sunday school classes. They aren't effective teachers at all, really, but they puzzle me. One of the eleven is an internationally known Christian. If I said his name, you'd know him immediately. Everybody here would. Four are known in a fairly wide community in their particular area. Most of you would not know them, but in where they live, they're fairly well known in their city, their community. And six are known only by a handful in their own local church. And I reflected on that a little bit, and I said, well, I wonder, what is it about these men that I find so attractively puzzling? What arouses in me this deep longing that I sense as I look at their lives, a deep longing for the Lord? What's this puzzled curiosity all about? This morning I want to talk about what is an attractively puzzling man. That's my topic. What is an attractively puzzling man? And I want to organize my thinking under three headings, the attractively puzzling man, who he is. That's the first topic. Second topic, the attractively puzzling man, why he's rare. And third, the attractively puzzling man, how to become one. And that'll cover this morning and this evening. First then, who is he? Or what characterizes an attractively puzzling man? Notice with me the three activities that are listed in our passages. And as far as I know, and I'm open to being corrected on this, but as far as I know, these are the only instances in Scripture where the behavior of a person 
which has been commanded of God is designed specifically, or at least has the predicted effect, of arousing questions in children. It's always to men, in all three cases, always to men, and the response of curiosity is always delayed. The people are not responding quickly. As I think about one of the men on my list is my father, unsurprisingly, I suppose, a very godly man, and he puzzled me in so many, many ways, but I don't recall ever coming to him and, and clearly saying, Dad, I've got questions that you've stirred in my heart. The questions were there. And I didn't come to him and ask, but I have in recent years. As a kid, though, I didn't. Sometimes the curiosity isn't expressed for some time. Don't, don't lose heart, fathers. If you're living your life consistently and your kids aren't noticing, they, they probably are. The questions may come later. But notice that these three activities that were specifically intended, or expected at least, to provoke curiosity in the kids, and in other people who observed, I'm sure, uh, follow a little pattern that I want you to observe. The first event was the Passover in Exodus 12 a memorial of God's redeeming power as he brought his people out of Egypt after 430 years of slavery. The second instance was the everyday, informal, and modeled instruction which the father gave to his children in Deuteronomy 6. The third behavior which provoked curiosity in kids were the memorial stones that Joshua told the people to take up from the Jordan and to place them on, at the uh, location of Gilgal so that people would notice the stones and ask questions. What are those there for, Dad? The Passover, practiced instructions, and memorial stones. Three behaviors that God commanded of the Israelites that were designed or expected to provoke curiosity. Now, why? What lessons are there here for us? Let's look at each one. First, the Passover. Look back at Exodus 12. How to be an attractively puzzling person. How to live your life in such a way that curiosity is provoked. When we do live our lives under the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to provoke some level of interest. People are going to notice. The fact that we're so rarely noticed is testimony to the fact that our lives are incredibly predictable and not characterized by much supernatural activity too often. Notice in Exodus chapter 12 that when the children asked the question in verse 26, that they were to say to them in verse 27, listen to the words of the father in response to his child's question, what's this right all about, dad? It's a Passover sacrifice to the Lord. And listen to what God did. Listen to why we're excited about this. Because God passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but he spared our homes. What do you hear that? What do you hear in that? What's the reality beneath that? As you listen to that, what's the man feeling? What's he saying to his kids? Isn't he saying, listen, fellas, I want you to know something. We're a grateful people. The sovereign, omnipotent, holy, just God of the universe came down and in holy justice smote the Egyptians. He had every right to smite us, but he didn't because of his grace to us. We're a grateful people. We've been delivered from Egypt. We've been rescued from the penalty. And we're resting now in the benevolent power, the loving goodness of God, and we're pretty excited about that, and that's worth remembering, and that's why I do this right, to remember with gratitude the fact that our God, who's powerful, who's strong, has loved me enough to redeem me. And all that we now do is made possible by the truth of his loving intervention in our lives. There's a reality for you. When somebody is living their lives with an attitude of thankfulness, with an awareness of what it means to be loved, that frees him from the pressure to conform and liberates him to a desire to obey, I find that attractively puzzling. 
I'm aware of what God has done in my salvation. I'm aware of his love for me. I've been freed from Egypt. I no longer have to go back. Because of what he's done, he smote the Egyptians, he's delivered me. Therefore, I'm freed. There's nothing for me to do to earn what I have. It's mine. The pressure's off. Do you know people who are living as they should, apparently, at least behaviorally, but their lives are just characterized by such pressure? I think mine is a lot. I don't think that's very attractive. And I think that to the degree that our lives are characterized by pressure, to that degree we've not understood the reality of the gospel. When I find somebody who's understood what it means to be delivered, that God has won me to himself, to the point where there's no pressure in their life, where they seem to be moving towards God out of gratitude as opposed to uh, requirements, when they've gone beyond duty and move towards a desire, and their hearts really are moving towards God because of his love to them, that's the person whose life I find attractive. Look at Psalm 119 for just a minute. We'll not take time to read the entire chapter. Psalm 119. And just notice a verse or two, two verses in particular. Psalm 119, I'll read you verse 20 as you're turning. The psalmist is here talking about a deep longing within his heart. And as I read this particular verse, I find myself wishing I had the chance to sit down and talk to this man about what he's saying. I find him attractively puzzling. In verse 20 he says, My soul is crushed with longing. For what? Fill in the blank. My soul is crushed with longing. Now fill in the blank. For what? Maybe for health, for a better job, for a husband to be faithful and to give up his infidelity. My soul is crushed with longing for the salvation of my kids. My soul is crushed with longing for my wife to become a Christian, for my parents who are elderly to become saved. My soul is crushed with longing for all sorts of things. The psalmist says, what I find deepest in my heart is a longing for the ordinances of God. That's not how I would have filled in the blank. But he did. And I say, what's going on with you? You puzzle me. Look at verse 131. 131, the psalmist says, I opened my mouth wide and I panted. I opened my mouth wide and I panted. Verse 131, Psalm 119, verse 131, I'm sorry. Psalm 119, verse 131. I opened my mouth wide and I panted. For I longed for what? What do we pant after? What makes us salivate? Pecan pie? Things like that? We're going to the Holiday Inn buffet after this. That was a diversion. I opened my mouth wide and I panted, for I longed for thy commandments. Listen, it's rare, at least in my experience, it's rare to find somebody who is so aware of what's been done on his behalf, so aware of the loving intervention of God, so aware of the goodness of God in his life, of what God has done, that their response to the goodness of God is to pant after him. That's rare. When I find that person who's panting, as opposed to performing... I find myself attractively puzzled. I wonder if my life's like that. Look at the second instance, the sixth of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6. And notice the teaching that aroused questions in Deuteronomy 6. Notice that as the fathers taught their children, the children asked questions. How many of you have had that experience as you seek to teach your kids the scriptures? How many of them come and ask questions? How many of them remind you when you forget devotions? 
how many of them, when you ask questions during devotions, are there eagerly with their hands up. It doesn't happen too often. But here it did. When your sons ask you questions, Dad, explain this teaching to me. I want to know more about it. What was it about the father's teaching that was attractively puzzling? What I want you to observe is this teaching was done in the context of living. When you sit down, when you stand up, when you go to bed, when you get up, in the normal everyday intercourse of life, that's where I want you to wrestle with the reality of how your lives are working. That's where I want you to face what's happening in your lives. And I want you to bring the truth of God to bear on the specifics of what's happening right now. The teaching in Deuteronomy 6 was directed to the realities of life. They weren't denied. The realities weren't. The real struggles, the real problems were dealt with. It seems to me so common today for people to deny how bad things really are. And I think they're bad. I think they're bad in our lives. I think they're bad in my life in certain areas that shouldn't be. And they're bad in your lives in certain areas that shouldn't be. And the level of our relationships is not what it should be. We're not convincing the world of the reality of God by the way we get along with each other. We're convincing them of just the opposite. We're giving them reason to doubt. Things really aren't that good. And a person who's saying, I'm willing to face life as it is, as we walk around, as we sit down, as we talk, as we see what's really happening, I want the truth of God to speak to the reality of what's going on, and the reality is reasonably pathetic. I'm willing to face that, say these men. And when I hear somebody who's willing to face the reality of the way things are and talk about them and talk about biblical responses to the realistic problems of life, I find myself aroused. I talked recently to a man who's a leader in Christian circles. His kids are all grown now, and he told me about the tough times he had during their teenage years. He had tears in his eyes as he shared some of the struggles, and one of the struggles is still going on. He didn't talk about Pollyanna kinds of things. He didn't minimize the difficulty. The, the problems were real. And he was saying, what the scriptures mean to me in this situation, and I was all ears. Because he was talking about the guts of life. He wasn't saying, everything's fine, no problems. He wasn't the kind of husband who when his wife comes to him and says, honey, there's problems with the kids. He says, I don't want to hear about it. Things are fine. You're just making too much. He was willing to face the reality of life. Someone who realizes how pathetic and how difficult things really are and still turns to the scriptures for answers gets my attention. Someone who denies the reality of problems and opens the Bible to deal with something other than life doesn't get my attention at all. There's no curiosity aroused. Lastly, Joshua chapter 4. When the children asked questions in Joshua chapter 4 about the stones from the Jordan River, then notice that in verse 22, that the fathers were instructed to say to the youngsters, the Lord your God dried up the waters, and in verse 24, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And in verse 5, notice the effect of what the Lord did in the Jordan River on the surrounding nations. It came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, when they heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted. There was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. God worked it out to see to it that his power was sufficient for the sons of Israel to accomplish their purposes. People who were aware 
of the power of God. People who can point to some stones and say, listen, let me tell you what that makes me aware of. It makes me aware of the power of God and it gives me the confidence to realize that God has enough power to melt the heart of the enemy and to give me all the resources that I need to carry on faithfully for him. The person who is aware of the power of God and therefore is persistent and all that he does is the person who wins my attention. A life that reflects the reality of problems but doesn't get bogged down by them but says, look, yes, things really are bad. Families are falling apart. Husbands aren't doing a very good job. Kids are rebelling. Churches aren't very warm places. Yes, all that's true, but the power of God is still sufficient. Don't quit. Don't give up. God can make it work. Our responsibility is to be faithful. The person who's persistent is the person who wins my attention. Notice then, to summarize, three puzzling elements in these people's lives that arouse the curiosity of the children. Three things that characterize an attractively puzzling man. Someone first who is aware of God's redeeming love to the point where he's freed of the pressure to obey and is now panting after God. And you sense as you're around that man that the deepest part of his being is responding to God. His mouth has opened wide and he's panting. He's aware of God's goodness and God's salvation and he responds to that goodness by panting after him. That's the first element, someone who pants after God. Second element is someone who's seeking to live the truth that he teaches in the context of his own life, not running away from the reality of problems in his home and not unwilling to face the difficulties in his kids' lives, not unwilling to face the reality of how bad things are in so many circles, somebody who's willing to see that things really are pathetic. And thirdly, someone who, in the face of looking at that miserable reality, is still willing to be persistent because he knows the power of God. Someone who's panting, who's pathetic, and who's persistent. Three words to summarize what I'm saying. Our first question then, who is he? Who's the attractively puzzling person? Or what characterizes that attractively puzzling man? He's one who's panting after God. He's one who realizes the patheticness of his own life and other people's lives and is willing to be open and vulnerable about that. And one who's persistent when it's tough continues. Let me just introduce our second question and then answer that and the third one this evening. Why is that person rare? Why do I have just 11 names on my list? Well, I checked out these 11 names. The three elements fit rather well. The names of people, when you look at their lives, it's clear the deepest part of them wants God. Other parts are there that aren't very attractive, but the deepest part wants God. There are people who don't deny the reality of how bad things are. They recognize how pathetic life is in a sin-stained world. But the people who don't quit, they're persistent because they know the power of God. And that makes me want to go talk to them. Why is that rare? How many families do you suppose, and do ask the question of ourselves, how many families do you suppose see Dad as uninvolved, as angry, controlling and distant, or maybe see him as weak and indecisive, friendly but rather passive how many see their dad as panting after personal comfort a little more money a little more prestige how many see their dads panting after the knowledge of God and that's what strikes them as the deepest part of their father's personality were you blessed with a father like that I was I am are you a dad like that are you blessing your kids with that 
many families see dad as proud, together, free from struggle, always rejoicing in the sense that he denies the reality of problems? How many see their dads as never really being willing to admit that struggles continue? Quite successful. And therefore hear the teaching of scripture from their fathers as irrelevant to where they really are because dad doesn't understand struggle because he has none. Because he's blocked out the reality of his own. Or how many of their dads as facing the realities that family life doesn't work sometimes. Family life falls apart sometimes. Relationships don't work sometimes. And dad is aware of that and faces it and recognizes how bad things are. How many families see dad as working hard because he knows he's competent? He's good at his job. He's good at what he's doing. He's got talents. He's got abilities. He can handle it. How many see their dads as self-sufficient? Or maybe just as grumbling people, as discontent people who just are so sick and tired of the hassles of life and broken lawnmowers and bills that don't get paid and, and new bills and just always discontent as opposed to someone who says, yeah, life really is tough. Life is a problem sometimes. There are meaningful moments of relief and joy and pleasure, but there are hard times as well. But because of the power of God, my commitment is to be persistent in obeying God. How many families see dad as panting after God and recognizing how pathetic things sometimes can be and yet persistent? Why is that rare? What are we lacking? Are we lacking it? Are you with me on that? Is it rare? How many names could you put in your list? I had 11. I could maybe scrounge up a few more. I think it's rare. I really do. But I'll tell you, I want to be that kind of person. I really do. I want to be attractively puzzling. Why am I not sometimes? Why is it rare in my life and maybe in yours? And if it is, how can I become more attractively puzzling to my children, to my friends? That's our question for tonight. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To learn more, visit LargerStory.com.